Hello, and welcome back for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. In this week's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Kriti Garg. Dr. Kriti Garg completed her dental training and specialty training in oral maxillofacial surgery in India prior to moving to Australia in 2007. She went on to become a fellow with the Royal College of Dental Surgeons in 2009 and is a consultant oral surgeon at the Royal Dental Hospital where she is currently the OMFS department head. As if all this has not been impressive enough, she also completed her master's in journalism at the University of Melbourne and has published in reputable media outlets such as The Age and SBS News. In this episode, we chat about Dr. Kriti's journey and the challenges and obstacles that she faced early in her training. And we also have an in-depth conversation about what she has learned from training so many residents in oral surgery over the years and the key traits of successful young clinicians that she's noticed. Next, we had a talk about COVID-19 and the impact it has had here in Australia and in particular on the public dental system where we both work. And for context, this interview was recorded a couple weeks ago before Melbourne had its second wave of the virus and a fresh set of restrictions have now been in place with an, you know, as we're seeing an increase in community transmission being spread throughout the city. We also finish off this episode talking about the importance of work-life balance, including the importance of developing hobbies outside of work. This episode is filled with a lot of great content, and I'm sure you guys will enjoy it. This week's episode is brought to you by my good friends at Ivoclar Vivident. Ivoclar is one of the world's leading and most innovative dental companies, offering a comprehensive range of products and systems that provide you with new opportunities in dentistry. For an even more aesthetic and efficient result, and better dental care for your patients. Making people smile is what they do. To find out more about Ivoclar, their products, and the Ivoclar Academy, visit www.ivoclarvivident.com.au. And as always, if you're new to the Newbie Dentist, be sure to check out all the previous episodes. We've had a lot of great guests on the show. And if you do enjoy the podcast, if you're a longtime listener, be sure to pass this episode on to your friends, colleagues, or classmates. It does help the podcast grow. Without further ado, please enjoy this great interview with Dr. Kriti Garg. Welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, giving a voice to young clinicians worldwide. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to be the dental industry leader in in-depth, informative and motivational interviews with some of the world's leading clinicians, academics and experts with your host, Dr. Omid Azami. So I'm here with Dr. Kriti Garg, who is one of our bosses at the Royal Dental Hospital, where I've been working for the past you know, few months as an oral surgery resident. Uh, Dr. Garg, I met you early on when I was in dental school and I remember I was assisting for you in theater. And at the time, uh, one of my good classmates, uh, Dan Berami, who you know quite well as well, and I were quite keen on research. So I remember after the the clinic session, the theater session finished, I came over and I was like, oh, you know, if there's any research projects and um, you're kind enough to kind of help us out and get us going on that kind of road. And it's funny where you don't know where things are going to lead because, you know, a few years later, I was kind of reaching out to you again and uh, really interested in this position and, you know, your help and support really means a lot to me and kind of getting me where I am now. So uh, I just wanted to kind of publicly thank you, I guess, uh, on the podcast before we get into it. Uh, normally how we like to do things is just start with a bit of an introduction, a bit of a, 
like origin or backstory. And I know you have a pretty cool story. You've been through a lot in your career and, um, you know, traveling and things. So uh, if you want to just take us back, sort of, I guess, you know, why dentistry in the first place and then the, the process of, you know, going through dentistry into oral surgery and then your process of, you know, moving to Australia and getting your license and things here, that'd be awesome. Sure. And uh, I mean, thanks, Ahmed. And I don't think I've got, um, you've got anything to thank for because I think people who are perseverant and um, hardworking and interest, interested in um, things in general, I think they find a way regardless of what comes in their way or uh, people who help them or not. I think they always manage to be where they want to be eventually. So well done on, um, yeah, coming back. And even as a student, I know there were a bunch of um, people in your batch who were really enthusiastic about the surgical part. And that's always a little bit of um, exciting um, thing for me when I see a student who takes a little bit more interest um, than the normal blood and flesh <laughs> um, and does their homework and um, yeah, and asks questions and is ready with stuff. So um, yeah, I think you guys were um, a couple of those students who really um, I think made uh, my belief in teaching a bit more um, strong in terms of what we are doing is probably the right thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, in terms of dentistry, I don't think dentistry was ever my first choice and still isn't. I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> to disappoint all the dentists out there. A class to silver amalgam or a composite filling still freaks me out. Um, but I think the part of dentistry that really interested me early on in my career was um, surgery. And um, after when I was in year 12, 11, actually in year 11, we have to choose subjects. And um, I mean, my dad is a journalist, so journalism always interested me and storytelling and all those kind of things. But I was at that crossroads and I don't know how much you're familiar with um, India and Asian countries. I mean, especially in India where the era where I grew up, um, there were only two mainstream professions which were considered as professions, <laughs> medicine and engineering and um, humanities and arts and economics and those kind of things were still very parallel and, you know, um, not really what's the word, um, culminating into something um, constructive later on, job security and all of those kind of things. So my dad said that, well, you can always be a journalist, even when you are older, uh, why don't you get a real job first? And this is coming from a, a person who was actually a journalist. So I, I thought, fine. Um, and then the other thing that interested me at that point in time was um, neurosurgery and I, I envisioned myself as a neurosurgeon somehow. So year 12, 11 went in um, sitting those medical entrance tests. And I think seven, 8,000 uh, kids, year 12 kids, sat those exams in my state. And there were 300 seats. So <laughs> it's so competitive. Yeah. So I, and it's an objective exam. And I think I missed out by 0.6% in the medical entrance. And I just thought no, now nothing is left for me. So I was on a wait list for dentistry and that's how things work in India. So it's medicine, dentistry, uh, nursing, veterinary sciences, and so on and so forth. So dentistry came as a default and I was like, what? I've never, ever thought of becoming a dentist. <laughs> Um, and people were like, you, you're foolish if you turn it down. And I thought, okay, fine, let's give it a go. And I still remember my first year was pretty much a blur in the sense of I'd never thought of bending wires or fillings and all those kind of things. And uh, 
um, I did quite well in my first year. I think partly because of the subjects like anatomy and physiology and um, those human biology kind of subjects, which I did really well in. And then second year, we had our first experience um, with a patient. I pulled out a tooth and I thought, that's it. This is what I want to do. And um, after that, there was, I didn't focus on any other subject, <laughs> really. Third year, fourth year, it was totally surgery uh, focused. You know, I did well overall, but I think surgery was my main um, go-to. And then again, we had to sit another entrance for maxillofacial surgery and um, another roadblock, which I had to take some time off uh, after my dentistry, almost six, seven months to study for the exams. And that was a bit challenging because almost seven, eight thousand or even more kids, uh, I mean, dentists sit across that common entrance uh, test for uh, PEDS, endo. So it's 50 seats. And out of that, there are, I think, 13 odd seats for maxillofacial. But I had this time I had decided that no matter what, I have to get in. And um, luckily I got in. Um, I got 16th position um, in that entrance, I still remember. And yeah, I took up maxillofacial surgery, three, four years of intense training um, at one of the India's biggest, uh, busiest, not biggest, busiest hospitals. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, since then, I've not looked back in terms of career, uh, why surgery or, yeah, that question doesn't really come to my mind. <laughs> yeah. So when, um, just if you can go back, when you were doing the OMFS training in India, what was that like in the first couple of years, the, the, growth, the learning curve of like getting exposure to these things? Uh, because obviously, you know, from you know, fast forward now, like from our position, seeing the more senior people, like the, the registrars and things going through um, and their experiences. So it'd be interesting to see how you kind of see yourself in that position, how you, what was it like in the first few years yeah, for you there? Sure. Um, I think it's, I can say that things have changed dramatically since I trained in a lot of ways, but in some ways it's still um, same. And I was having this conversation a while back with um, uh, one of our um, registrars as well, that it's surgery is still a very male dominated speciality. So when I got in, um, I was the only female out of those 13 candidates to pick up MaxFact surgery. So at that point in time, it didn't really matter because my whole focus was on that. But when I joined my department, out of the 14 maxillofacial trainees of all the three years, um, I was one of the few. So there were three or four female candidates. And um, yeah, it was a very <laughs> imbalanced ratio in terms of, you know, and it shouldn't matter really, but it does. Unfortunately, yeah, it does matter. Uh, it was a very intense um, training in terms of, Picking up, I had to pick up a new language. Um, it was Western, um, so I I speak Hindi, which is the national language of India, and English. But uh, there are a lot of like you know there are three hundred dialects and different and dialects. Yeah. So um, I got uh, a post in Gujarat, which is um, a Western Indian state, and they speak Gujarati. And if you want to talk to a uh, you know, a villager who's just been hit in a road traffic accident, <laughs> you can't expect them to answer your questions in Hindi or English. So they would give give their history in Gujarati. So I picked up a language in three months, literally, enough to be able to, you know, ask them, take a decent history. Um, but if you want to assess the scale of um, the cases we would get, we would get five or six uh, road traffic accident, domestic violence, or in general, you know, those kind of cases through the night, they would be prepped early in the morning and then ready to go for theater in the next two, three days. And we had um, three 
three session, three to four sessions a week of full theaters. Um, trauma, TMJ, pathologies were like, yeah, left, right and center, osteomyelitis. And the the good thing, I mean, I think this is a good thing in Indian MaxFax training is all the major government hospitals for training are associated in the same campus with the medical hospitals. Yeah. So I had, I didn't do me- a medical training and that's not compulsory in MaxFax in India, but I had a year of rotation in um, medicine while I was doing on call for my MaxFax. And um, because I was a surgical registrar and the arrangement with medicine, surgery of Thali, NT and Onk was that any uh, MaxFax trainee from our department would need that intense training. I had a lot of support from those fraternities. So, I mean, in surgical, uh, you know, surgical posting, I was assisting with appendicectomies and lap colies and all those kind of things. Full exposure, yeah. Yeah, full exposure. And um, uh, oncology, we had one full um, head neck uh, hospital in the same campus and they were always needing extra pair of hands. So they were eager to teach and we were eager to learn. So it was pretty, you know, rapid. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) tracheostomies and radical neck dissections and all of those. So it was good, uh, but very intense. And you had to learn um, quickly, too much, too quick, too quick kind of stuff. But I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed most of it. I would have preferred a more balanced. I don't remember the three, four years. How did they go? How quick I was? I don't think I ever paid attention to my diet, my lifestyle. And I think that part of training has changed in India as well and here as here as well. And I appreciate it. And I think that's for good because um, there's a chance that if you don't swim, you'll sink, and uh, burnout rates are quite high. Um, and at the end of my training, I was really exhausted. I mean, quite exhausted physically and mentally because there would be days of not sleeping, nonstop. Yeah. Not sleeping and forget getting married or having kids. Um, I don't think, I mean, it's not gender specific. I think none of the trainees got married in their training. Um, and it's uh, like, it's unreal. It's not practical. You are in your late, uh, (laughs) mid to late twenties. You should, you know, start of, uh, think of those things as well. There's life beside, um, your training and career, but unfortunately, surgical branches are a bit like that. Yeah, so yes, it's tough to uh, tough to balance this training and the the yes. lifestyle factors of it. And I think that's pretty, I guess, universal. It would be the same in Australia and the same in North America. I think so. I think so. Surgical branches a little bit more taxing in that sense. Definitely. And so you came over to Australia. You know, you got your license and have been working. Tell me, a little, tell us a little bit, I guess, about your current state of practice. I know you split time between the dental hospital and doing some private work. Yes. Um, um, so what 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 excites you in your in your weekly work nowadays? Look, I mean, 11 years, 12 years ago when we came here, um, I I came with a very open mind. Um, I wasn't sure. I knew that Australia needed a medicine, medical degree, uh, but I wasn't sure whether my experience would count when I spoke with the college at that point in time. They said, oh, look, you've got, you've done stuff, but um, either you sit the AMCs or do a medical degree and then we can look at your training and see whether we can, you know, uh, forego a part of your training and um admit you in advanced surgical training if you if you are um, good but I wasn't really keen at that point in time because basically we had come here for my husband's fellowship in um, intensive care and the plan at the time was to go back so I thought if he finishes his training in four years or five years and then I'm still doing medicine and then I go back uh, doesn't really make sense so we just persisted with doing my basic 
uh, dental uh, council exams, which were really tough to crack. Yeah. <laughs> because crown preps and <laughs> <laughs> amalgams, I don't think I had done any in years. But uh, we managed to do it. And then um, luckily, I got a job at the dental hospital in oral surgery. And I was sort of feeling good about it because I could start doing work. I hadn't done much in one and a half, two years while I was sitting the exams. Um, and, um, and then I got a specialist registration as oral surgeon and mixed feelings at the time. I thought, oh, this sort of puts an end to any, um, you know, chance I may have had of doing anything advanced. But at the same time, I was at that point in my life where I thought, look, um, I do want more from my life uh, rather than just surgery, which it had been in the last decade or so. So it was a good balance. Um, I was starting my family as well. Um, and um, I think since then, I've been pretty much at peace with what I'm doing here, which is mainly dental viola. And um, my, uh, I mean, that thing hasn't changed. Um, the fact that I love teaching and, um, you know, knowing more and teaching is a way of, uh, you know, learning. Staying so, sharp, yeah. Yeah, staying sharp. So that really keeps me going and that really gives me a little bit of buzz uh, on my day-to-day -day sort of practice in oral surgery. Mm. Definitely. And it's, I mean, it, it comes across, I think, you know, we have a pretty good team at the, at the hospital and we have a lot of good teachers and mentors and um, definitely no exception where when we work together, we learn a lot and definitely uh, challenge us a bit, but I think it's good. It keeps us, uh, like you said, it keeps us sharp and, and make sure we don't build any bad habits and things like that, which is really appreciated. And, and one of the perks of the job really to work so closely with you guys. The one of the main things I wanted to chat with you today, because I know it's a topic that you've you know written about and uh, we're actually you know involved in the policymaking meetings uh, you know, as you know, clinicians in the hospital, I guess we're kind of like frontline in the way we didn't have much say in you know what happened in the back, but we got to see the implementation of systems. And for me, it was really cool because obviously growing pains as you know, the COVID pandemic came and uh, the hospital had to kind of act quick, like the rest of the world really to see how we're going to implement all these things. And while like not everything went smoothly, maybe at the start, it, it was really cool for me to see like the evolution of how these systems kind of evolved. Um, and mostly like, you know, the triage thing that we did with patients coming in and f from, you know, uh, one person at reception to having chairs and lights. And it was just cool to see that progress. So from, I guess more of the, maybe the admin side of things where you actually, you're involved in these things and you have to take in all these external uh, policies and mandates and things coming in. Well, what's been like the last few months like for you and, uh, in terms of work, in terms of decision-making and, and all those things that are related to COVID and the public uh, dental hospital? Um, it's been very challenging to say the least, but also interesting. And I think, um, uh, <laughs> I think over the last few years, we've had a very comfortable, cozy life and you can get into that quiescent phase where you don't challenge your brain to learn something new. And I think that was what I realized that how quickly in the last three months I had to um, really rapidly do something. It almost pretty pretty much reminded of my time as a MaxFax registrar in India, where you had to you're constantly you know read an article on something new which you are going to do tomorrow and do it. Um, and that's how I perceive this pandemic as. And 
um, and obviously, I mean, <laughs> with great power <laughs> comes great responsibility. So yeah. uh, you suddenly um, realize that whatever decision you'll be making will be impacting a lot of whole lot of people, including your patients and your colleagues and everyone else. So we um, and there's not a lot of data at the time available or research available to back what you are thinking in terms of this something, you know, new um, virus or new um, disease, which at that point in time, we didn't really know much about. And even now, there are a lot of un unanswered questions. Um, so it was hectic, but I think what really helped was, and I always look back at any adverse experience you've had in life to build your resources that, you know, help you later on in facing any adversities. And I've been through dengue, I've been through malaria, I've experienced both of those outbreaks. Personally, I've experienced them personally and in the community at large. And um, uh, also riots and, um, you know, a whole lot of communal riots, earthquakes from where I come from. So this was m more like a, you know, emergency mode. Yes, uh, put your gear on and just um, start acting. And that's what I think we did. Um, and luckily, I've got um, my husband who's an intensive care specialist. So he was... <clears throat> a great source of uh, information about the actual, uh, you know, disease and protocols. And I sort of filtered them down to what we can do in our setting. And uh, we had a good team of people who were able to, you know, brainstorm some ideas and implement some of them. So while, yes, ADA was catching up and they, uh, they started sending out some good material, but to implement that in a hospital setting um, was a little bit challenging, but we were able to do it and I think now the thing is we have to undo all of some of those things and that's again going to be a little bit of challenge For sure. um, in terms of PPE and in terms of logistics in terms of um, what patient to see and what not to see and also the fact that there wasn't much about uh, transmissibility of that um, of the disease in terms of oral surgical procedures so while clear-cut established um, you know evidence about aerosols but then do oral surgical procedures produce aerosols and um, and those kind of debates and robust discussions um, needed to be had with people and every hospital I'm sure has the same you know there are two tiers where there's clinical side of the thing and then there is a managerial side of the thing and often um, they have to work hand in hand but then you have to explain where you're coming from but at the same time you have to think about what impact it's going to have long term on the economy side of the thing. So, yeah, it was a tightrope uh, walking, but um, I think we did pretty well as an organization and as a department. Um, and there's there's a lot to be done. And I'm sure we'll look back and think that we could have done a lot of things differently. But at that point in time, we did what best we could. No, it was it was, it was fascinating. I think, uh, I guess, in a, in a way, being involved and in a way, just being on the sideline, just kind of observing what's happening, because it was a combination of you know, like being evidence based, which you know that was, I guess, your more of your role in in things of coming of how should we tackle this with some evidence of what other hospitals are implementing and things, and then you said the managerial side of like the non clinic clinicians having their agendas and policies and things that they have to kind of follow with with those pressures and then the the debates were interesting like the ethical stuff like um you know should we use the ppe to treat patients versus should we refer them off to tertiary hospitals uh are we doing a favor to the tertiary hospitals by treating patients here to like lower the burden on them but then we're using the ppe so it was actually really cool just to see all these moving parts and, and see 
uh, how things kind of shook out. And as we got into it, like the wait list, like do we, some patients, do we see them? Do we put them back on the wait list? Um, it was really, really interesting. So what's some of the takeaways? Like I, I know, I mean, the article that you wrote was the initial restrictions of not being able to treat patients. So we're relying on, you know, medication, antibiotics, and just symptom relief. Uh, what, like, what's your main takeaways from this uh, I guess, pandemic clinically and what you think we can maybe do better next time or improve on? I think preparation is the key to dealing with any kind of emergency. And I think Australia as a country, because we are so, in general, we have a lot of things in our favor. Um, Australia is an island. Um, and, um, you know, the population is not as dense as countries like India or China. Um, it's a developed country. Um, all of those things, but they, but the pitfall with that is there's a chance of being complacent. And I think uh, we were in that comfortable mode. Um, we have been for a while and therefore we developed to a stage, but then we didn't really think that this actually something like this can strike us. And um, I think we caught up pretty quickly, but our preparation wasn't great. So if you look at from any particular unit, like a private practice, um, did we have PPE? No, <laughs> we had no PPE. We had the normal PPE, but then we did not know whether what kind of, um, you know, mouthwash would come in handy for these patients or what kind of dis disinfectants should we use? Uh, what kind of guidelines are needed? So those things, I think, really are were an eye-opener. And the takeaway is... Um, what I, I think I was about to, <clears throat> so myself and a few colleagues, we were, um, we wrote a, a sort of a perspective and we submitted it to a few um, journals as well, was um, there needs to be a core um, task force or a committee, a disaster management committee, like every country has, like India has and China. These major economies of the world, they need it. it in the same way, every hospital needs one. And uh, there needs to be representation from the key stakeholders um, and, you know, people who are able to contribute to decision making, both in operational as well as implementational and research point of view. And evidence-based uh, research should be the agenda um, of that committee so that they are prepared if any kind of emergency, whether it's a natural disaster or a pandemic like this, strikes. Um, because what I found challenging was, you know, getting people on board and getting the right people on board and um, cohesive, uh, you know, unit. Because if you are fragmented, then the decision making is delayed and fragmented. And that's what was happening everywhere. And there was this underlying tension um, and that. Uh, you know, that mars your decision-making um, ability. Um, and it trans transcends down to, um, you know, the junior staff and it, um, to the clinical and non-clinical staff. And eventually you don't offer the best care. And he in healthcare, there should be minimum leeway for compromised care because that's our duty of care. We have to offer the be best possible treatment we can to the patients. We are not selling anything here. We are actually offering health care to a live human being. So it should be the best possible care we can offer. So that's, that's what I felt that we need something like that in every hospital. And that should be in communication with other uh, emergency, you know, <clears throat> task force or co committees with other hospitals so that a, you know, a statewide response can be launched in um, situations like this. 
Yeah, that's 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 some great points. And the thing you were saying, uh, it was a few like maybe earlier in the week. It was a great point of when we have senior clinicians, like I guess at the government level, who also have different perspectives. Like you're saying, if they're not cohesive in their message, it's so easy for things to delay or get jumbled up or different like wrong outcomes to come of it. And it's it's fascinating, like you know, if we're relying on being evidence based, that there's still so much variability of different opinions that people can come up with based on like what's available in the research. Uh, it's going to be cool. I, the, I think there's a lot of good research that can come out of this. And hopefully we'll, we'll, then towards the end of the year, once we've kind of had a good resolution, a bit of an outcome, so we can actually have a bit of an end point to kind of reflect on. I think we can really come up with a lot of interesting stuff that can hopefully be handy in the future if anything like this kind of similar happens. Yeah, I think because um, if you look at the last pandemic we had, Spanish flu, <laughs> I mean, yes, there are life lessons from it, but they are not really, they can't be applied to the current um, scenario and the state of world that we are in at the moment in terms of technology and everything else. We are so advanced and different to what the society was then. So yes, I think definitely we need to boil it down to some key points and work at it as a work in progress. Definitely. Uh, the, the next thing I want to I guess, ask you is, I mean, you've been at the hot debt teaching role for a long time and you've seen obviously different classes and cohorts of students and things go through different learning curves, different initial abilities, I guess, confidence. Uh, I was interviewing uh, a doctor who's a you know, consultant dentist at a cancer hospital in Toronto, Princess Margaret Hospital. And on the side, she does some coaching and talks on like imposter phenomenon, imposter syndrome and those kind of things. So I'm curious, you know, uh, for you've seen a lot of residents come through, registrars come through, even your young consultants. What's sort of been like similar trends that you've seen in terms of how people cope with the initial learning curve of increased responsibility or uh, going out on their own a little bit? Uh, just like the teaching side of things, I'm curious, like what's your take on like a normal arc for like maybe like a resident, for example, just like, just a bit more relevant for me, I guess, and any younger dentist kind of listening um, and that growth curve that they have. Any things that you've picked up on or any trends? Yeah, heaps. And I actually do the <laughs> safety and quality audit for my department as well. So it's always interesting how we have a higher incident rate of uh, certain incidents um, at the beginning of, you know, when new <laughs> registrars and new residents start. And then they plateau and then they start to decrease by the end of their rotation. And what does it say? It just proves the point that everyone's new in experience when they start. They pick up on their skills as things progress and then they become better at it. Um, so I'm not, I mean, it always, it never uh, ceases to amaze me how quickly people pick up uh, if they are driven. And uh, I can't say really if there has been any uh, year or any particular batch of residents who haven't progressed as well as others. Everyone ultimately by the end of their rotation here are, uh, you know, they have really good basic dental realer skills. And uh, we take pride in the fact that we are able to help you know, residents, um, and it's a fairly competitive selection, you know that, uh, when people, you know, apply for this position, I think most of the um, dentists or uh, people who apply, they have a clear pathway or at least some idea of where they are going, or at least they want to experiment and see whether surgery is for them. So this is a pretty safe environment in that sense. And um, when, when, they, when people start, I always tell them that this is the safest place where you can make mistakes and learn Definitely. from it. 
Um, but I do feel that it takes a while, at least three to four months for people to actually get rid of their older habits and inhibitions and that whole initial thing to prove that I, I actually know things um, <laughs> uh, can be a bit counterproductive in the learning. Um, and I look at it like I think things have dramatically changed for me after I became a mom because um, I could see uh, when, when I look at my son and if I'm trying to teach him something, um, the older he gets, he becomes more and more um, resistant to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, for me to trying to prove that he, the, th- the way he's doing a particular thing is wrong. And he's always trying to come up with a reason why he's doing it, even before he's analyzed that it's wrong. And I see in the same way that uh, my job is to actually make sure that um, whatever I know best, um, I'm able to impart it in the best way possible to whoever's um, coming in my path of teaching. And um, it's interesting to see that um, most of the residents, they start with that initial, you know, a bit of resistance, older habits, trying to prove that, yep, I can pull out a wisdom tooth in this much time. I think by the end of their rotation, they don't really actually think, and which is great. They have, we have able to, we've been able to achieve our purpose that it's not about the time. It's actually about the quality of stuff you offer. And once you work on that, automatically your um, efficiency and economy of time would Exactly, it would come. So yeah, it's it's an interesting journey, and and then when the residents train to get into the max max training or surgical training, and then they come back as consultants, that's even better. So yeah, yeah. No, that's great, and I, I think that definitely. I mean, I, I worked for in private for a few years before taking this job. So you know, you go from complete you know clinical autonomy, you're kind of just doing things as you want uh, without any you know. There's no one saying like not that people say no to things, but you don't have to like bounce ideas off people or like run things past people. Um, so it's an interesting like experience to come at the first few weeks and you're going from being your own, like, you know, unit to back to back to like, okay, now <laughs> it's a bit humbling, I guess. And you, and my confidence, like it's like the Dunning-Kruger effect of, you know, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And so now I'm like way less confident because I know, like I have seen the range of things that can go wrong or the challenges and, and just things that I'd never even like thought about, um, working up or considering before doing things. So it's almost like a miracle I've got through the past few years without too many. uh... But I think we also feel really good in the fact that we are able to offer such a diverse experience to uh, the residents. Like if you look at our consultant base, we are all from different backgrounds, trainings. Um, Some of us are from overseas, some of them from New Zealand and some from Australia and duly qualified, singly qualified. And all of us have our different, you know, little, tricks uh, of the trade so I, I think that's a really good advantage for um, a new resident starting on because they can they have a vista of uh, things to choose from or reject and then ultimately derive their own concoction of you know um, things that they'll use and later on in their life so I think it's a pretty robust and good um, training in terms of uh, residency and even with basic dental velar skills, I think this is the bread and butter for even maxillofacial training. So dental velar is the base for any other advanced training you may undertake yeah, later on. For sure. And for the young dentists listening, I'd be interested to get your perspective and advice on this. We're, we're talking about this actually yesterday uh, over lunch. Uh, obviously, you know, if you get through your dental degree, like there's some baseline, you know, knowledge that we all have, uh, ability that we all have. But what, like in your, from your take on it, what's key personality traits or um, like habits and stuff that you've seen of like people who've, you know, successfully made through these programs and are doing well, regardless of if it's like 
in oral surgery or if they've gone into branch into other things. Um, beyond that baseline ability that hopefully we all have, uh, what are those key traits and, and habits and things that you've kind of noticed? I think um, if you look at any specialty, any uh, profession in life, not only just dentistry, people who are successful or who have been successful um, does not necessarily mean that they've got 20 degrees behind them. I think there are certain personality traits that, and also what you measure success as, whether you own uh, 10 different clinics and you can still be a very unhappy person and, or you can work in a public hospital for the, for whole, your, whole of your life um, and yet be the most happiest person in your fraternity. I think um, what really determines is what you aim to achieve by your profession. And if um, personal growth and um, increase in your knowledge and skills is what you are looking at at every step, then you'll keep the you know excitement alive because most people burn out either by boredom or rep repetition. And um, for young dentists or whoever who wants to really persevere in this branch, um, the tips I can really share is one, find a niche area, whether it's general dentistry, but find an area that really challenges you and stimulates you and make it your own niche. And, um, and that way you will be interested and other people will be interested in what you're doing. So there are a lot of general dentists who do everything, but at the same time, they have a particular focus, either it's in kids or, you know, a particular area of dentistry. And if you are specializing, specialist training itself is quite grueling in any field, whether it's MaxFax or endodontics or ortho, it's the same rigorous cycle. Um, I personally feel that you need to have varied interest in life um, so that dentistry or your speciality is not the only thing. Um, and that sort of gives you a good balance to sort of unwind and unhinge from the, you know, tedious, repetitious process, which unfortunately dentistry is. A lot of people find, uh, you know, they get bored after uh, their 40s or 50s. They are burnt out after doing the same thing again and again and again. So I think it's in important to have a life outside your main career. Yes, you've spent 10, 11 20 years, uh, you know, striving for something, but at the same time, life is more, uh, more than that. And it should be. Yeah, that's great. That's, I mean, I definitely agree with that. And I think it's something that will, I think it's a nice natural segue into, you know, the journaling and the writing and stuff that you're interested in. And I think that's something that maybe we kind of connect over because we're into this type of, it's, it's creativity is a nice outlet I find. And you know, it's one, it's, it's a nice creative outlet Two, you know, what you're writing about and what I'm trying to podcast about is there's a nice satisfaction of, you know, we're kind of contributing back to the professional in a way we're uh, contributing to the public, uh, sharing knowledge. And, and for me personally, like the legacy components super cool for me, because I know like when I look back, even if nothing comes out of all these, like when I'm like 50, I can look back and be like, oh, I have like a hundred hours or whatever of recorded interviews with different dentists. And oh, I wonder what so-and-so is doing now and things like that. So um, there's a certain beauty to it. And yeah, I, I, I always have this internal debate of, you know, work versus hobbies. And it's tough because at a certain point you need to turn that knob one way or the other, because, you know, you don't become a specialist by accident or you don't become successful in your career by accident. It does take that time and dedication to do it. And it might, like you said earlier, come at the sacrifice of some of these other things for a period of time. But I think the, the, the retrospection that you have is cool because you can say, 
well, you can do that for 10 years and then come back to it. It's not like you, it's now or never. So tell me a little bit about your hobbies in terms of writing, uh, the topics that you enjoy writing about and sort of you know, what you've done for someone who hasn't listened. And I'll put the links to the ones you've already published um, uh, in ABC and, and others and sort of what you hope to do in the next few years with that. Sure. Um, I think the more I, uh, more I think about it and the more I learn from my own experience, I actually want to talk more about this whole thing of balancing and, you know, having a life outside your main career or profession. And um, for some people, it could be sports or some, you know, creative pursuits like painting or writing, but do not underestimate the value of it. It's basically, actually, it feeds into your main career. And that's what my experience has been. I've definitely become a better clinician after I did my journalism and not because I could write cool stories, (laughs) but it's because it has made me understand and think outside the box um, in terms of talking to my own patients. And I was actually um, writing this personal piece for one of the magazines. And um, the skills that I learned as a journalist, interviewing and listening to people and paying attention to detail, that actually helped me so much as a, as a practitioner, you know, when I'm taking history. And at the same time, my profession as a healthcare worker has helped me write stories about, um, you know, topics that normally um, general public does not really understand or pay attention to. For example, I wrote a piece on mental health of um, healthcare workers. And um, that, I you won't believe, like I got emails from, you know, a lot of overseas uh, practitioners. I'm not sure how it reached them. And it struck a chord with them. It was set in Australian sort of scenario. But the common themes that emerged was were burnout and, you know, how healthcare workers are sort of expected to have this cloak of resiliency and why we need to change the culture in healthcare profession. So I think having a life other than your main profession is an investment you make into your main profession. Um, and also not necessarily monetary benefit is the reward, but what you gain in terms of your mental health and well-being is far more um, valuable long-term than your actual career or profession. Um, And that's my advice to anyone who is starting out that um, think big and try to parachute out of that whole, you know, work culture where you're completely embroiled in it and you feel frustrated and burned out and, you know, the politics is dragging you down or the culture in your workplace is dragging you down. Try to parachute out and see if there is anything else that interests you and divert your time. Um, So I look forward to my monthly writing group sessions. And when I go there, I'm not a surgeon. I'm, I'm just a basic, a writer who's trying to learn how to not make grammatical errors, you know, and it's, it's so refreshing because I don't have to, I'm not judging myself and I'm not being judged in the same parameters that I exist at the dental hospital. And that just, it's refreshing. Exactly. So I think it's a kind of a detox and um, yeah, people should find ways to stimulate their endorphins and something that brings them joy and that they can look forward to um, so that they are able to contribute more to their um, main profession. Yeah, no, I think that's a great perspective. And, you know, I, from these interviews, I often get like one or two things that it's like a little like flashball, I guess, moment. I think that the, the linking back of skills and things that you learn from your hobby back into the day job that's pretty cool. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective because uh, you develop all these things and they become second nature in the background and then you kind of naturally do them at work or 
and you're like, oh, that's a, that's a great perspective that you had. So what's, um, what do you want to, like, do you want to keep writing? Do you have like a, maybe a book or something that you want to write about or any like long-term big goals with the writing? Or is it just kind of take it as it goes? So Omid, just imagine that I am the resident in writing world yeah. <laughs> at this stage. <laughs> yeah. So I need to still hone down my skills before I write a book. Um, Initially, I was quite resistant to writing health-related stories because I used to uh, feel quite strongly that I need a break from health, and that's why I don't want to write about science and health and medicine. But I've gotten over that um, obstacle, that barrier in my mind, because um, the few health-related stories that I have written, I've had such good feedback from the readers um, that I felt that, um, you know, probably I owe it to, um, you know, people... Um, to simplify the medical jargon and, you know, simplify certain health-related topics. And I might have a dual perspective from a journalist as well as a healthcare worker. So, yes, um, some of those projects that I'm working on at the moment are health-related topics. But I'm also um, working on some academic research papers. Um, recently, I've been given a clinical honorary fellowship at the uni, and um, I feel more now encouraged to um, write more and research more. Um, and I think at this stage of my career, I've done, I'm not saying I've done it all, but I've done more than, um, you know, I've done most of the stuff that I would like to do. So I want to now take a step step back and learn more in terms of research and uh, be able to contribute more to the, yeah, surgical, dental surgical fraternity. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's always, it's great to keep evolving and keep growing so you don't get stale, exactly. like you said, you don't get that burnout because there's like new, always new challenges and things. And yeah, I think I was I definitely in, in private practice, I was kind of getting that staleness. And I think that's why I was really kind of, keen on changing it up and getting this job. Uh, I haven't felt this, like, I guess, invigorated in a long time in terms of like just being challenged daily. Like you come to work and you don't know something and you get grilled and you have to go home and like search it. Um, I guess it's, it's kind of like in a way, but like being back in school in that environment and just being around people because like dentistry, especially uh, private dentistry is very isolating uh, in nature as well. So, um, it does get to you when you're just by yourself and you don't have you know people around you for. Yeah. And that's one thing actually I forgot. I wanted to say that for the for people who can do it, they should always do, um, one day of public service if they can. Um, and it's not because you want, you should not, you should contribute to the society. You should, it's a great way to be able to give back to the community, but also it, makes you appreciate both the sides of the coin and the challenges you face in a public setting they help you so much in terms of your private practice like and this is a very practical thing to say um i went into private practice after a long time of public service so even in india i was in public and then when i came here i was in public uh, for 10 years and then i um, opened up my own clinic with warren and I just realized that the reason why I'm enjoying my private practice so much is having worked in the public sector for 10 years, um, it has given me so many skills in terms of patience and resilience and, uh, you know, variation and complexity of cases that the certain cohort of patients that do trickle, uh, you know, challenging ones in the private practice, I'm, I feel I'm better equipped in my skills to, you know, tackle them. And I think every clinician should be able to, yeah, they should contribute um, one day of their normal practice to public if they can. Yeah, definitely. Especially in a large setting like the hospital, um, 
just like the actual social interactions with different clinicians and stuff has been amazing as well. Um, and seeing the different specialists and, um, it's just a little bit more vibrant. I, I really enjoy the hospital setting. I think it's one of the, my biggest draws to these types of, uh, roles. So, um, that's great. Um, well, we, it was a lot, we covered a lot there. Uh, is there anything you want to chat about or talk about that we haven't talked about yet? I think you've covered it all and <laughs> you should consider, you should consider an alternative profession in journalism. Robert. You're a big, <laughs> good interviewer. <laughs> no, I, I enjoy it. And, the, yeah, I think I mean there's the art to it as well, and I, I want to you know like speaking and and you know being uh, you know elaborate with your thought is is not easy, and it takes time to to develop that. And writing is something that I really enjoy doing as well, mostly just like for myself, I journal and things. And I think writing things down really helps with like articulation of thought because you really think through things, uh, which you might not do otherwise. So taking the time to do that is really cool. And so thanks so much for coming on. Uh, it was really cool to get your perspective, your history, uh, you know, how the COVID pandemic came and went and how we kind of, well, maybe it's not gone yet, but uh, hopefully um, the impact of that at the hospital. And yeah, I, I mean, it, it was, it's not great that we missed out on so much clinical experience maybe over the past few months, but just being involved and in the action, I guess, for the past few months has been really cool. And I think something that we'll, none of us will really forget. Like, for the exactly. Rest and 20 years later, when maybe, hopefully not, but if you're in a different pandemic or a different crisis situation, <laughs> you will look back and you'll think, oh, I've been through something similar and, you know, yeah. um, it's fine. I can go through it and it'll be over and I'll be fine. You can get through it again. Craig, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and we'll no hopefully problems. we'll chat soon and we'll look forward to more uh, papers and pleasure. All the best, Omid. Cheers. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and head over to iTunes and give the show a five star rating. For all show notes and to access all previous episodes, head over to www.newbedentist.com. Have a great day.